Trees surround our lives. Across continents, they offer sanctuary and inspiration. They clean our air and give us valuable materials for living. Their variety, beauty, and adaptability never cease to amaze. My name's Mike Greenwood, and I've been talking to author Jonathan Drury about a new book that investigates and celebrates their wonder and diversity around the world. In 80 trees. I grew up near the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew, and my father, who had originally studied botany, took us there, dragged us there every week for years and years and years, and kind of eventually won me over, I think. I'm attracted to trees both by the science which came from him and the beauty and the appreciation of that I think came from my mother. When my mum died she had a botanist's magnifying glass in her purse, something she carried around with her all the time and I think that that combination of science and beauty is something that stayed with me. There's just something about them, the amazing variety, the fact that many of them are so ancient that they live through generations and generations of human life and yet managed to survive all that and thrive. Around the world in 80 trees, how did you plan that journey? I started out from London in the same way that Phineas Fogg did in the original book by Jules Verne, Around the World in 80 Days, and then went roughly eastwards, around the world and back again. A lot of the trees are ones that I've seen on my travels, but there are some that I've always wanted to visit and perhaps only seen in botanic gardens. So it's a voyage both representing my physical travels and also the ones in my head. That journey is going to take you across a huge range of environments and landscapes and climates. What did you encounter? The sheer diversity of trees was absolutely staggering. There are trees that disperse their seeds by having exploding seed boxes where the seeds come out at 150 miles an hour. There's the Sève Bleu, this amazing tree of New Caledonia, which is in the South Pacific, that manages to sequester naturally occurring nickel and other contaminant metals in its latex. Many, many kilos in every tree, and bright blue sap that signifies it, which it then uses as a sort of natural insecticide. There are trees that create antifreeze so they don't freeze in winter. There's the Chinese lacquer tree that obviously gave us the fantastic lacquer objects but also inspired a group of monks right up to the 19th century to drink the lacquer and, and self-mummify themselves as a way to Buddhahood. One of the underlying themes of the book is how there is this intimate relationship between trees and mankind. We've coexisted for eons, we need trees. Well, whole empires have depended on particular tree species. One fantastic example is the quinchona, which is a, a tree from South America which contains in its bark a cure for malaria. The chemical is called quinine. Without quinine, Europeans, for good or ill, wouldn't have been able to inhabit the tropics and colonise the tropics. Of course, when they got to the tropics and needed to take quinine, it's a horribly, horribly bitter substance, and they mixed it with fruit juice and tonic, and that's the basis of gin and tonic. And in fact, tonic water still has quinine in it, with an interesting property that if you're in a nightclub, you can see it, it fluoresces sort of bluish white under ultraviolet light. There are some fantastic uses of trees. One of my favorites is gutta percha, which gave us gutties, the forerunner to the modern golf ball that was made out of the latex from this tree from Malaysia. But that latex at the time in the 19th century was also the only insulator that could be used for submarine cables. So without gutta percha, we wouldn't have had international telecommunications. 
The book, which is beautifully illustrated by Lucille Clerc, is a real celebration of diversity, but also an account of adaptability. Well, they have all sorts of ways of coping with difficult environments or for fending off predators. I think resins are interesting. Scratch a tree that has resin, it'll engulf insects, it'll trap them. Another defence that trees use is the milky suspension that we call latex. The best example of that is probably rubber that quickly in air dries to give a, a seal over the surface of the wound that stops bad stuff getting in. How do trees deter creatures like insects and animals from actually attacking them in the first place? Well, some trees have developed really quite nasty poisons. The, the cherry laurel, when an animal bites into it, creates a mixture that creates cyanide. The cashew nut that we're all familiar with is surrounded by a really, really pungent, unpleasant, very corrosive oil, which is why cashew nuts have to be roasted or cooked before we eat them. And of course trees use all sorts of physical barriers like bark and thorns and spines. Many trees have thorns and spikes of course, but the whistling thorn that common across southern Africa has taken these thorns to a new level. The thorns have sort of expanded at their base to make little homes for ants. And these particular ants are really, really aggressive. And when any herbivore comes to try and eat the tree, they will rush out and attack them. Are there ways in which those defensive properties have proved to be useful to us as well? Well, the neem tree is a terrific example from India, where particularly its leaves contain natural insecticides that disrupt the life cycle of insects in a very sophisticated way. Those trees are planted by farmers around the edges of their cotton fields, for example, and people have also distilled the chemicals from those leaves into commercial insecticides. The more we understand about these wonderful uses of trees, the more I think that we'll want to protect them and use them in a sustainable way. An overriding sense that emerges from the book is your sense of wonder. Is that wonder also tinged with anxiety about the future? I think I do have anxiety, really, because trees are under threat from a variety of different sources. We move things around the world more than we ever did, and with those products that we import, we bring in pests and diseases, which the native trees in any country might not be resistant to. There's pressure on the environment from human activity. Habitat loss means that trees are being chopped down in favour of agriculture or urban development. Human beings, by their actions, are changing the climate. There's no question about that now. And trees can't just up sticks and run away when they need to go somewhere a bit cooler or a bit wetter. And we're already seeing tree species that are dying out because their habitat is changing so fast. What's the main thing you want a reader who's accompanied you on that journey around the world in 80 Trees to take away at the end of the book? I want them to come away with some of my love and respect for trees and also to feel that trees are worth nurturing and protecting, not just because they're beautiful, not just because we depend on them, but because it's the right thing to do. Around the World in 80 Trees, published by Lawrence King, is available worldwide at all good bookshops or online at www.lawrenceking.com. My name's Mike Greenwood. The music was by Glenn Marshall, and this was a Wakewood production. <laughs>